0: Hey church, Jason Miller here. This is the latest teaching episode on the podcast feed for South Bend City Church. Uh, Before you hear the teaching, as we wrap up these last few weeks on the Sermon on the Mount before Easter, you'll also hear the gathering update that we offered on Sunday to the church about how things are going as we pursue financial commitments for the Tribune Project. Uh, if you're not aware, this is us rallying together as a community, uh, local long distance in-person digital to acquire and transform the printing press building of the South Bend Tribune in downtown South Bend. This will be a future home for South Bend City Church and a place for the people of South Bend to feel safe and seen and loved. It'll also be the place where we create the kinds of things that hopefully serve a bunch of you and the digital long distance family. Uh, check out the update at the beginning of the episode, and to learn more, head to Southpencitychurch.com, where you can see the project and make a commitment. Welcome to South Bend City Church. Uh, it's the Sunday at the beginning of spring break, so we're a bit of a skeleton crew today, but we're honored that you're here. And uh, we do have a lot going on, and I, and I want to take a little bit of time to update you on some of the big happenings related to our future home. So we'll do that, and then we'll move on to the Sermon on the Mount, the latest installment and all of that. Uh, As a reminder for most of you, next summer in the month of June, uh, that's the end of our time here at Studebaker, our lease wraps up. And so we've been in months of process and discernment work as a community. And again, I know most of you know all about this now, but just to clarify and remind, we've landed on a plan that we're gonna take this old house in downtown South Bend, the printing press, building of the South Bend Tribune, we're gonna buy it and we're gonna turn it into this as a place to be together uh, on Sundays and a place for the city during the week and we are hot in pursuit of this project right now. Uh, On Friday, we signed the purchase agreement. That's very exciting. Yeah. I just had no idea that commercial real estate is as complex as it is. We have learned so much over the last few months, but we're really thankful for where we're at there. Um, Today, I wanna update you on the project. I also want you to hear a perspective on the project that I was really helped by when I heard it. And to to hear that perspective, I wanna introduce you to Willow Weatherall. Please welcome Willow to the stage. Yeah, give Willow some love while she comes up here. Willow, we're going to get to your current work in a minute. Um, But the funny thing about Willow and I is we really got to know each other uh, five, six years ago when we were landing on Studebaker as a home. And what was happening in that season was I would be across the table from Willow as Willow was representing what's happening here at Studebaker at the time. Can you take us back to then like what you were doing in general and your work on and City Church here at Studebaker?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, during that time, I was uh, director of community engagement for the Studebaker redevelopment initiative. And um, part of my role was to get new tenants into the space. So, you know, the overall project is 1.1 million square feet Mm -hmm. of space, and you just, you know, you do that like one organization at a time. But the truth is that when you know when South Bend City Church first um, approached the project and had interest in being in this space, a church was not the first thing that came to mind <laughs> when we were thinking about building the Midwest's largest mixed uh, mixed-use technology campus. Yeah, it just yeah. wasn't. That it wasn't, wasn't, huh? It just wasn't on our radar. And in fact, you know, I'd go to people. I'm like, I'm like guess who wants to be in this ecosystem and they'd guess lots of different guesses and, and they're like, we give up and I'm like, a church. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, you know, it was like a in- really interesting. Um, it was an interesting opportunity for us. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, it was definitely an opportunity for me to get to know the church better, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and you know, that's actually like how I came to become part of South Bend city mm-hmm. church. Is sort of you know, doing my research, like <laughs> who, who are these folks and why do they want to be in here and yeah. what's what's their vision? How does that align with what we're building? And um, you know, I've said this before that the this ecosystem, what we were building, and the different kind of tenants that came in, mm. like after leaving the Studebaker redevelopment, I you know, I can say hands down, like this group was like the best tenant that I put into this ecosystem.
0: Oh wow! Oh. Yeah, it
1: really it's it was you know, and it was it was surprising. Mm. Um, the opportunity was surprising, and you know. Anyways, I think that's it's amazing. Out. Yeah, uh,
0: this journey has been full of surprises for all of us, and we love that. Uh, tell us. I, I think your background is really interesting because it, there's a depth to your work that runs runs deeper than maybe like just plugging in tenants, right? Right. So tell us a little bit about like your studies, your passion areas, your research, and like what you bring to all the development work that you do.
1: Yeah, I um, my what ri- originally brought me to South Bend. Um, was to do I, I came to do a master's in international peace studies mm-hmm. at the Crock Institute at Notre Dame and that was in 2001. Mm-hmm. And um, you know I was on a career trajectory to do international development work. Mm-hmm. And that's where I thought like I'd get to make a difference in the world. Yeah. And I came to realize after you know living in South Bend for a while there were there were other peace studies graduates that had sort of Landed here in South Bend, mm-hmm. and we're starting to do really interesting work. And, and my niche had been studying how post-conflict societies rebuild. And as I started to look around at South Bend, I, I saw this really mirrors a lot of different contexts that mm-hmm. I've been studying. So you have you didn't have a war, but you had significant economic decline. You mm-hmm. had social fractioning. You have people who had distrust of local government. And I thought I actually could take what I'm learning and plant myself here and make a big difference. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I've, I come at the, you know, community and economic development world, like through that peace studies yeah. lens. Yeah,
0: I love that. Yeah. And I feel like since the day I met you, I've, I didn't always know that that was your background, but I sensed that kind of deep current uh, in you. There was, there was just something down there underneath the tactical. Yeah. Um, and it's been really joyful to learn from you and to, um, See your leadership in the city um that that passion is taking you to downtown South Bend incorporated tell us a little bit about your work now
1: um right so as of um january this year i um went full-time as executive director for downtown south bend and um
0: and i know, gotta say some people hear that you're the director of downtown south bend and they think are you the mayor
1: right, right? I it's know. like what, what I is know. this tell us, what does this
0: mean yeah. um
1: well i you know i direct the organization that's really focused mm-hmm. on um you know, revitalizing our downtown, so not the mayor, um, but I definitely, you know, I'm wearing, I'm wearing my downtown shirt, you know, proud today. Like, you know, I definitely consider like, that's my, that's my world down there, you know, and um, I definitely work closely with the mayor, but with like, you know, a lot of other people who have a passion for um, what could be, and they're, they're building really interesting things downtown. So, Um, yeah, our work is to, is to make downtown, you know, this vibrant, prosperous Mm -hmm. destination for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, and to really transform the built environment as well. So
0: awesome. So built environment transformation, um, tell us a little bit then about like when you first heard that we were looking at Tribune, what did you think? What did you feel? How do you see that project through the lens of your work?
1: Yeah, that was super exciting. I mean, because the, the first thing is just to acknowledge, like this has been an amazing space. And, um. But the vision for the kind of impact that South Bend City Church could have in this particular ecosystem, mm-hmm. I, I just don't think can be realized here. Mm-hmm. And so what was exciting is to think about um, it's always exciting to work with people that can just see beyond what something was in the past mm-hmm. and is currently, which is a vacant building mm-hmm. and see what it could be. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about this church. And so to have this church positioned in the heart of the community in an iconic place, Mm -hmm. um, you know, without, where it's, you know, it's easy to identify the building, the location, you know, it's just, it's different. We're tucked away here, Mm -hmm. a little bit harder to find. Mm -hmm. Um, So just that change in the physical location, but really I feel like um, owning the building and um, being able to develop it, like with the way the church, in the, within the church's values and vision and the kind of impact, like it just unleashes so many amazing possibilities. Mm. So um, the last time I was in the Tribune building, it was many years ago, I um, was directing. Um, I directed a preschool when my kids were really little and mm-hmm. during the summer we do these adventure camps. Yes. And part of so one of the one of the things we did, I did a whole series of camps that introduced kids to downtown South Bend. Mm-hmm. And we toured the Tribune Building and I aligned the tour just at the right moment when the newspapers were drying. They were on that, oh, yeah, that yeah. <laughs> you know, conveyor belt going yep. up, you know, up into the space. And it was, you know, it was a space that was alive with activity. Mm-hmm. So then going back in recently and just you know seeing the renderings like that life is gonna come back to that building it's yeah. just incredibly exciting
0: that's awesome uh, you also you know you're, you're tightly connected with with the downtown ecosystem which means you're always talking with and connecting with other people who are invested downtown yeah. and I gather you've had a chance to like sort of like check the pulse of the downtown community as the word gets out about our intention there like what yeah. are you picking up
1: yeah um, no it's really exciting because you know there's so many pockets um, in South Bend in general but in downtown you know where there's there are buildings that have been vacant for a long time and, you know, people are like, God, I wish that we, you know, I wish that we could bring life back to that place. And what I've noticed is that on any, you know, any pocket in the city, it really just takes like two or three of the the right combination of like businesses Mm. or organizations Mm -hmm. working together. Mm -hmm. It has this incredible ripple effect across the rest of the block. Mm-hmm. So with South Bend Ch- City Church, like saying, "Here's where we're going to be," already the conversations are, are around that area of either smaller entities that huh. have already, you know, are already there, yeah. are now like leaning in, like we've got an incredible partner, or there's just this immediate like follow-on effect of of interest of other, um, you know, other people that are in, interested in being in close proximity. Wow. So yeah. that's super exciting, and and the thing that's I would say equally exciting is that that interest is really being generated um, through lo- like local ownership. Mm-hmm. It's it's not external entities looking to suck equity out of our downtown yeah, and take advantage. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's other people that are builders mm-hmm. and are wanting to come you know come in alongside what the church is doing. So yeah, so there's development. You know, there's development that's already in the works sort of on the north side of the church that will really transform that area, but in mm-hmm. the buildings immediate to the, like immediate west and south mm-hmm. is where I'm seeing, yeah. Exc- some excitement. Some, yeah. some, some excitement. Yeah, yes. that's awesome. Yeah, it's well, new.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I thought you were able to share some of these perspectives in a smaller meeting that we had earlier. I personally found it so helpful. And like, you know, when, you, when you're on a project, you get tunnel vision, right? So you zoom in on the details of the project. And it just was so helpful for me to hear you because you have this kind of this whole ecosystem perspective that gave me some different things to think about. So I'm really thankful we get to hear from you. Also, since we have you up here, I do want to say uh, we love and cheer for and are so thankful for people like you who give your life and your work to the well-being of everybody in South Bend. So thank you. And we should all say thanks to Willow.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure, thank you. Thanks, yeah. Willa. And Jason, yeah, I just want to say, you yeah. know, th- thanks for inviting me up here. And um, it is like the greatest joy of my work to get to work with other people that roll up their sleeves and want to get stuff done. So thanks to the community here for being a partner with me.
0: That's awesome. Thank you, Willa. You guys want to hear how it's going? Let's do some project updates. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about how the commitment project process is going. Before I put the information on the screen, just a reminder, if you haven't been here or you're kind of fuzzy on the details, I'm fuzzy on everything right now, personally. Um, So where we're at right now is we're in the middle of the commitment phase, basically between now and next Sunday, we're discerning together what kind of financial commitments we want to make to give over the next two years to the project. And then the reason we have a deadline there is, I just mentioned we signed the purchase agreement. So in short order, we need to take those commitments that we're making right now to the bank, like literally, we take those commitments to the bank, and then that's how we secure the mortgage part of the process that comes alongside our giving for the full, the, the full thing, right? So in that process of making commitments, uh, let me kind of give you a stock of where we're at. So our goal is $3 million for what we're gonna give over the next two years. And as of today, actually, as of last night, we're uh, $1,125,395 committed, committed from 57 individuals and families. And I think that's worth celebrating. That's a big deal, yeah. And so much so that uh, because we crossed that first million dollar threshold, and we didn't want to like, just fly right past that, the team thought we should celebrate that a little bit. So I feel like Oprah right now, look under your chairs. I'm serious, look at your chairs. We got a little sticker for you. We got a a little gift, a little memento of the project. Uh, You can slap this on your laptop or on your refrigerator or on your car. Everybody should have one. You might have to flip your chair over. Yeah. A little bit of project pride for everyone here uh, to sort of blast the vision for the project. Not bad, right? This is what you get for coming to church the Sunday at the beginning of spring break. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We are um, so thankful and we don't take for granted um, this progress here. Um, let me go back to that slide with the commitment numbers there. So 3 million the goal, 1.125 committed and 57 individuals and families. Uh, do you guys wanna, I thought today you might be interested in looking a little deeper at the numbers. Uh, some of you in the room are wonky like me and it gives you more context and more perspective on where we're at and where this is going. Do you wanna let like, go under the hood on these numbers a little bit? Cool, let's go there. Uh, I thought this was interesting for you, next slide. The range of commitments, um, I'm gonna say a lot about this because I think it's really beautiful and significant. So people are committing for what they're gonna give over the next two years, and the range of commitments goes from $480 committed over the next two years to $300,000 committed over the next two years. What I love about that is I actually think that's a profound picture of what the church ought to be. Uh, Jesus has that story he tells, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, They're walking, it's not a story, he observes that at the temple there are people of great means giving, and then there's somebody of less financial means who gives a a quantitative amount that's much smaller. And Jesus tells his friends, quite matter-of-factly, that the, the widow who gave out of her limited means gave more. He just says that, he just says they gave more. In the kingdom of God, in the economy of God, Things are different. And I think this is a picture of what the church ought to be. In this church family, we have people of the widest imaginable spectrum of means uh, financially, right? We have people who don't know um, how they're gonna pay for their next rent check. And we have people who have a lot of uh, resources and assets that they're sitting on. And I think when the church shows up, it's a celebration of everybody doing their part from wherever they come from and whatever they have to give. And to be quite honest, I actually think there's a a certain kind of um, faith or heart that's like really clearly reflected in that $480 that is especially beautiful. Because if I have $300,000 to give, which I don't, I imagine it's kind of easy for me to see what a difference that makes, right? I look at the goal and I know that that number is a big part of that goal. Uh, What I find even more moving and um, beautiful is somebody who has an amount to commit that may not feel like it moves the needle on the project, but they jump into it with their heart because participation matters, right? And so um, I think that whole range is beautiful and frankly, it kind of takes my breath away that people are showing up like that across that whole spectrum. I also just thought this was interesting. If you actually look at just all the commitments, the most common commitment amount, like the most number of people who have picked an amount, It's it's right at $10,000, and I just, you can do whatever you want with that, but I have access to all this information, and some of you are wonky like me, and I thought you might enjoy seeing some of it, too. Um, Now let's do a little bit of project forecasting, because let me go back to the slide before that, Diana. Yeah, thank you. So if you see a three million dollar goal, and again, that's what we're going to uh, need to give alongside the mortgage to do the full scope of the project. and if you see 1.1 million committed, uh, you might have questions about like what kind of forecasting we're thinking about right now. like where does this go right? Um, that's great. I want to uh, show you some, some, some different uh, scenarios that we are working on, because there's so many variables in, in real time, we keep sort of calculating uh, different possible futures here inside the, the realm of our life at Tribune. Uh, Now, here's the thing though. If I show you different scenarios, I need you to promise me something, okay? So let's go to that slide, Diana, where we're all gonna say something together. Would everybody please uh, read this together, a liturgical reading uh, all together now. Before Jay shows us more numbers, we promise to remember that these are estimates based on complex equations with numerous variables many of which cannot be more precisely determined until we begin the project in earnest and all god's people said amen good okay amen that being said let me show you what we're working on next slide so again the full project scope is we take a two and a half million dollar mortgage again that's also an estimate interest rates are varying we're working with the bank on approval scenarios but we think that that's an appropriate mortgage debt Because if we have a $2.5 million mortgage, we'll pay less on our monthly mortgage payment than we currently pay on our rent here. Actually quite a bit less, because we're leaving room for utilities and maintenance costs, right? That's where that $2.5 million number comes from. And then again, the full-scope project, $3 million, that's us what we're gonna give over the next two years. Here's the thing, we still think this is the right thing to shoot for, and we're not giving up on it yet. Why is it the right thing to shoot for? It's the right thing to shoot for because our heart for the Tribune Building isn't just that South End City Church has a Cadillac. We weren't like looking for an upgrade as a church. We're looking for a functional space to live our life together But when we realized that the Tribune building is the best option for our future Our our vision expanded a little bit the way that Willow was talking about and we began asking pretty quickly If we're gonna be the stewards of this space downtown in the heart of downtown What does it mean to take responsibility for the full space on behalf of the whole city, right? That's where this big project vision comes from not just that like Sunday mornings would be fancy but rather that like this space that's been empty for quite a while, unused in the heart of downtown, would be sort of maximized in its potential for the benefit of the whole city, right? We don't need a rooftop to worship Jesus on Sunday mornings, right? However, like downtown has very little good outdoor space. The rooftop would be a really wonderful way for people to flourish and enjoy the outdoors, have weddings on the rooftop, events on the rooftop. That's a good example where we don't need the Cadillac, but if we're gonna steward a building on behalf of the city, we wanna do the full scope project, right? Also, the reason we still think that that might be realistic is we've got 57 commitments on the project so far, and in the last year, something like 250 individuals and families give to our church. So I have no idea uh, if you're gonna discern that you should be a part of this project or what you're going to discern, but what we do know is that we have still a small fraction of the people who regularly give financially who've committed to the project, and so that's why we're still moving toward the $3 million goal. That being said, we're also asking, what, like, because we don't know what's going to happen, because we don't have a crystal ball, and we don't think that faith comes with the kind of guarantees that like, have dollar signs attached to them. We've also been asking, um, like, what's the minimum viable future for us in this building, and what's the cost for that? Now, this number isn't new. We've already shown this in some settings, but not all of you have seen it yet. So I want to put this in front of you. Uh, next slide. So there's a phased approach option of the project that would require the two and a half million mortgage, and then a one and a half million dollar investment up front. In the phased approach, what we would do is, uh, if you've seen the renderings, you can see them up there upstairs in the mezzanine if you haven't yet or find them on the website. Um, in the phased approach, that big upstairs vaulted ceiling gathering area that's on the second floor, the kind of cathedral-like space. In the phased approach, we actually don't really touch that space. It remains unrenovated. We fill out most of the kids' area, like the plan is, and then what would be the lobby in the full approach, would be subdivided into like a mini lobby and a gathering area. Does that make sense? I'll just say that again in case that's unclear. In the phased approach, the large vaulted ceiling cathedral-like area, we wouldn't touch that in the phased approach. Rather, uh, we would go ahead and renovate most of the kids' area as you see it in the designs, and then we would take what is planned to be the large lobby area in the full scope, and we would subdivide that with a mini lobby and then a, a worship area in that same general footprint in the building, make sense? The good news, of course, is that that's a viable way for us to move forward and have our life in our new home. I think that's awesome, and I'm really thankful for this. It's also good news because we're pretty close to that number already, at more than 1.1 million committed, right? Uh, There's a couple of downsides to this approach. Uh, The practical downside is that we end up building things that we would tear down later. Because we would still have the dream and goal of ultimately moving toward the full use of the full building, right? So In the phased approach, it means that we probably have to do more fundraising later in our life together, and then some of the things that we would build to make the phased approach work, we would deconstruct so that we could then build out the full scope of the project, right? Of course, the other downside on the phased approach is, like I said, it just means there's a lot of prime square footage sitting downtown unutilized, right? However, um, I'm really thankful that this is an option. There's a third scenario that fits into all the variables that we're playing around with that kind of fits in the middle here, uh, which is reduced full use. So in this sort of middle ground scenario, we would go ahead and like, make use of that vaulted ceiling cathedral-like room for our gathering area, and we would have the full-size lobby, we'd have most of the kids' stuff, but it does mean that we kind of strip out a lot of the other sort of beauty and functional ads in the building that we'd get, that we'd get it to the full use. Does that make sense? Anybody tracking? Anybody have questions about that? Cool. Okay. We wanted to put all that in front of you because it's the way that we're continuing to think about the project as everything evolves. Um, and then this week is like the high-stakes week, so between now and next Sunday is the deadline for commitments. And we have to have a deadline because we have to take it to the bank and get things going, right? So. Um, I want to remind you that uh, if you haven't made a commitment yet, but you've been thinking about it and discerning it, you can go to our website. The front page of stop has all the info and it's got a link that you can click and that link will take you to a form where you can let us know what you'd like to commit over the next two years. You can let us know if you plan to give that through like regular cash giving or whether you want to make a gift of stock or property or some other asset, Uh, all that stuff's there on the website. And then um, on Easter, we'll let you know what the number is and then we'll uh, plow forward together with where we stand. Uh, after the gathering today, if you want to learn more about the project, head to the mezzanine. I'll be up there. You'll see we've got the designs up there for you to take stock of. I'm happy to answer your questions. Uh, but we're one week away from like, locking in our commitments and moving forward with the plan. And uh, as I put all these numbers in front of you, I hope you hear my gratitude and my enthusiasm on this. Um, I've said it before, I'll say it again. This is not a church where people with more money matter more. And this is not a church where we've been asking, how do we squeeze the most dollars out of people? However, we have this beautiful opportunity in front of us, and I don't want to be um, negligent in my responsibility to like, like call us to this. Like, hey, this is what we're doing. We spent months discerning this, and now we're doing it. And we get to sacrifice together and make it happen. And so we're going to keep uh, praying together and thinking about our commitments and making those commitments online between now and next Sunday. Sound good? Awesome. Thank you for hanging with me through all the details. Let's move on uh, to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, our next uh, next text in the teaching. Uh, first, uh, a story about some heartbreak. Uh, earlier this week, I got, or last week, I got a text from a friend of mine, one of my best friends, and he says, yo, dude, I finally started listening to that podcast. And the podcast he was referring to is a podcast that uh, made a lot of waves in the last year or so, and it's about the... Um, stratospheric rise and then the tumultuous fall of a large church it's especially about a toxic leadership culture and a toxic leader who uh, used his power in really harmful ways and uh, this podcast was scintillating some of you know the podcast i'm talking about um it was like it was like number one in podcasting not like christian podcasting i mean like podcasting at one point this thing like took the world by storm with its sort of tabloid details of uh, a crazy, intense, toxic church culture and the harm that it did for so many people. And I listened to it uh, with very intense feelings, and all of my friends seemed to listen to it, and then this friend of mine, one of my best friends, texted and said he's finally listening to it. And I just felt this, like, thing sink in my spirit. Uh, It's also the case that last week uh, Discovery Channel has released a new documentary series about another toxic uh, church culture and a highly empowered famous church leader who was um, then revealed to not be living with integrity with the things that he was preaching. And I think in the wake of all that, um, I've been in my feelings, you know. Two weeks ago or three weeks ago when we did the whole Sunday about the Tribune Project and I was just trying to like own and name the fact that so many of us have so many reasons to be cynical about church, because it seems like every week there's a new headline about a new church leader behaving badly. And in that sermon, I said something I didn't realize I was going to say, because it wasn't in my notes. But what I found myself saying was, do you think you're tired of it? How do you think I feel? And sometimes what happens in preaching is stuff comes out I should probably see a therapist to get some of that stuff out, which I've done many seasons of my life. But in that moment, I actually had the feeling, as I said the words, how do you think I feel? I had this kind of out-of-body experience, this real-time feeling, which was like, Jay, hold on, because they don't need to hear the rest of your feelings about that right now. But they're really intense. Um, I feel, and I know a lot of you feel it too, that there is so much like done in the name of Jesus. There's so much noise made about Jesus. There's so many... Um, big to-dos made that claim to be about Jesus that often end up being revealed to like, be very far from his heart or his way. That's very real. Now, for some, I understand why that would like, put distance between you and Jesus and like the Jesus thing and the church thing. I get all of that. What I think is interesting is Jesus actually anticipates this. He says this is going to happen. This is the next thing, we've been moving through the Sermon on the Mount, so this is the text that we have today in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus says there are people who are going to do really spectacular things in the world, and they're going to say that those things are done in the name of Jesus, in fellowship with Jesus, that they're a part of the Jesus thing. But in spite of the fact that they are spectacular and that they claim Jesus, they're actually quite far from the will of God. They're actually quite far from the life of God. And he says there's going to be a reckoning for that kind of gap between the brand and the rhetoric and the heart for, the, for the, the lack of integrity between those things. He actually anticipates that right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you ever like, have had a front row seat to that gap between the sort of loud, public, sort of spe- spectacle, things done in the name of Jesus, that then you realize um, seems actually quite far from the will of God or from the life of God, from the heart of God. If you've ever seen that gap, you know how frustrating, how angering it can be. Let me tell you about an experience of mine in college. Uh, I went to Christian College, to Bethel here in town, and uh, I was in the chapel band, which meant that I lived in the Holy of Holies at Bethel. If you don't know what what I mean by that, um, Bethel's a Christian college where chapel's mandatory three times a week, and so Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning at 10 a.m., the entire campus community, students and faculty, administrators, everybody's there in the chapel. And a lot of the people who are there are actually pretty excited about it, not everyone, but a lot of people, they come there with, like hearts full and excited for worship and teaching. And um, being in the chapel band meant that I was like always on the stage playing the piano in the band for the first part of each chapel session. It also meant, you know, that I was backstage with the guest speakers, we'd pray for the gathering beforehand and I would be close to the people on the front row who came to chapel early so they could get seats in the front row. And often there was a real fervor among the students for like the things that we were singing about and celebrating there. And before I would get too cynical, so much of that was deeply sincere. And so much of that was um, very formative for for students. And I know people today who I went to college with who I saw them then and I've seen them now. And there's been this really beautiful long line of faithfulness and integrity that matches up with the way they express themselves in those chapel gatherings. So I do wanna call that out, that's really true, right? But there was this other thing that happened and the way that I stumbled into it Uh, is is just sort of through this circumstantial story that happened in my life. So my senior year at Bethel, no, sorry, my junior year at Bethel, uh, I'm an RA in the freshman dorm. And um, I had secured for myself a room to myself, which for this introvert was heaven. I mean, like, what's the point of being an RA in the freshman dorm if you can't exercise a little bit of power to give yourself your own room, right? (laughs) And then a few days into the spring semester, a few days into the January term, when I'm back in class and back in the dorm, I'm actually in the resident director's apartment in the building, so this guy's my boss, and he's older than college students, and he lives there, and he kind of oversees the dorm. And I'm one of the RAs, meaning it's my job to oversee my hallway of, of freshman guys, right? And while I'm in there with the resident director, this transfer kid walks in. He had just come to campus a couple days earlier. He hadn't been there in the fall semester, but he transferred in the spring semester to be a freshman at Bethel. He walks in, and we're both checking in on him and asking him how it's going, and he starts telling us that he's in roommate hell. He's just like, man, it's just I don't, I'm not really like, happy with my roommates, I'm having a hard time studying, and then the resident director says, oh man, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. Like, is there anything we can do to help? And this punk looks at me and says, I was kind of wondering if I can move in with him. <laughs> and I'm like, excuse I don't, I don't know what to do right now, and my resident director just says, oh, that's a good idea, let's do it. I'm like, that happened very quickly. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) So Nick moves into my room, and we quickly become friends. Now, Nick had transferred to campus because his girlfriend was going to Bethel, and he had not had a very good time at the school that he was at beforehand, so that makes sense. Nick also transferred on a baseball scholarship. And so he was a member of the baseball team. And if you know much about me, it may not surprise you that I did not have much connection or familiarity with things on a baseball team at this point. Uh, but because my, my new freshman roommate was a member of the baseball team, I quickly got to know a lot of the guys on the baseball team. And once I got to know the guys on the baseball team, my eyes were open to a dynamic on campus that had been there all along, but I had never noticed. Here's the dynamic. At a, at a school like Bethel, many of the students arrive Genuinely enthusiastic about the faith life of that campus. They're all in on the Jesus thing. They're excited about the Jesus thing. They chose this school over others because they want the Jesus thing to be a part of their college experience. And then there were the students who come to Bethel because they got an athletic scholarship at Bethel and not elsewhere. So there's this whole kind of cultural divide that, like, it was right there in front of my eyes, but I had never seen it until some of the guys who were part of that other dynamic became my friends. And what I started to realize was, if you talk the Jesus talk at Bethel, if you fit the mold, if you act like the Jesus-y way, if you kind of fit all the cultural expectations that come with like Midwestern American evangelical Christianity, like that whole package, if you fit that really well, you get along great at a place like that. But if you don't, if you don't know the code words, if you don't know the little signs and symbols that tell other people that you're on the same team, you're not welcome there. And I, like, I began to realize that there were these black sheep on campus. Like I noticed how um, like, the guys on the team, they would always eat lunch on their own at one table, and at first I thought it was because they were too good for the campus, and then the more I watched, I realized it was because the campus was too good for them. And something started to like boil inside me. Eventually, I... Um, I decided I was gonna do something about it because I can't stand like, righteousness codes that create insiders and outsiders. I think it's so du- like, opposite of Jesus. So like, I started going to their games because I thought that was one way to like, support the team. And I, re- like, I would go to their away games. I would be the singular only Bethel fan in the stands. right? And by the way, they start playing in March, so I'd have like, a winter parka on and like, my little Bethel flag and I'd be like the only guy in the stands. Side note, uh, after like the second away game, the coach came out and it's a small campus. So I was like, Jason, what are you doing here? And I was like, supporting the team coach. And he's like, well, just ride the bus next time. <laughs> so like by, by a month later, I'm actually like riding the bus, sitting in the dugout, keeping the book for the team and I become the chaplain for the team, which is a whole other story <laughs> for another time. But what I observed is some of the people who would raise their hands the quickest in chapel and talk the loudest about Jesus and show up at all the Bible studies and like like very quickly and publicly associate themselves with the Jesus thing, didn't seem to have a shred in their life or their their body or their bones to treat their actual brothers who were in their midst the way that Jesus would call them to treat them. And again, I'm not saying this is everyone. I'm not saying this is like the only thing going on there, but it was one of the things going on there and like having a front row seat to that Like, I began to feel my blood boiling at the thing that Jesus is talking about, which is that sometimes the people who make the most noise about Jesus are the least aware of what he actually calls us to. And I watched, like, some of the people who, because I'm sitting there at the piano, I'm looking at the front row of chapel, and I'm like, oh, man, you seem big on the Jesus thing. But I saw how you treated those guys in the dorm last night. Um... You can talk a lot about Jesus and make a lot of noise about Jesus and associate yourself with Jesus in really public ways and be far from the life of God and far from the heart of God. That's just real. I was talking to a friend of mine who is a member of our church here, and he doesn't work for a church, but he works in like a church adjacent job. Uh, It's a company that serves churches. And so it's still kind of a, a Christian space. And he was telling me a story about how the last few years as a part of SBCC, Um, he has moved to see some things differently. And he's come to believe that Jesus calls us to some things that he didn't used to think Jesus called us toward. And he talked about how like three times now at his place of work, he said precisely because of like some of the things we say and do as a church and the way he channels those into his Christian workplace, his bosses have sat him down. And the question they've asked him is, hey, it's still all about Jesus for you though, right? Which the irony is, he would say it's precisely because he's been trying to move further into the very things that Jesus actually teaches, the things he actually says and does, that he's now being questioned about that. And as he and I were talking about it, I I encouraged him, I said, the next time they ask you if it's still all about Jesus, you could retort back and just say, yeah, but what's Jesus all about? Right, Because you can, you can like wave the flag and raise your hand and make a big deal and use his name all day long and miss the actual content, the actual things he says and does and calls us to. And here Jesus is saying that there's a bunch of people who are going to make a big deal about his name and wave a flag and miss the actual content of what he calls the will of God or the life of God that God wants to give us. And the thing is, this isn't just frustrating, it isn't just... Um, hypocrisy, the real danger about this is that Jesus can then become a mascot for the worst kinds of things. When you make a lot of noise about Jesus, but you lose sight of the content of his life and his teachings, he can actually be used as a mascot for the most heinous, hateful, evil, Anti-Christ things. And we gotta be vigilant about that kind of stuff. For one thing, this is why on the way to baptism, which is happening on Easter, we've spent months in the Sermon on the Mount. Because one thing that people who are being baptized are saying is: I'm actually signing up for this. To grow in this. Doesn't mean it doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect, doesn't mean you get right overnight, right? But I'm actually saying, I'm enrolling in the school of Jesus, in the actual content of his life. Like, I actually think that Jesus is showing us what the life of God looks like in the world. And he's going to walk with me into that life, into the content of that actual life. Not just like a mascot or a label that I carry around while I do things that have nothing to do with the life of God. Right? Now, here's the danger at this point in the sermon. I've been talking a lot about other people. So let me tell you a little bit about me. I've had um, a very complicated relationship teaching the Sermon on the Mount these last several months. Because every week, I find myself saying things that I am still figuring out how to live up to. And I don't think it'd be appropriate for me to call out um, those Bethel kids who ostracized the baseball kids. or these even darker and more evil things that happen in the world if I don't just own up to and admit the tensions in my own life between the content of Jesus' actual teaching and the ways that I actually live. Let me just give you um, a few examples. In Matthew 5.11, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil things about you because yours is the kingdom of heaven. I am still struggling to learn that and to trust it and to live in it. I was at Barnes & Noble a little while ago. I'm walking through the bookshelves. I love just kind of seeing what kind of books are out there. And I discover that somebody I know, personally, who is also a pastor in South Bend has written a book. And I think, oh, that's cool. So I pick up the book and I'm leafing through it. And I actually randomly stumble on a page in his book where he quotes one of my sermons. It's the sermon I preached on sexuality. And he calls me out and he, has a verbatim quote from my sermon, and the quote is one of the conclusions that I offered in the sermon. And then after he quotes me, he says, he offered this with no biblical support. And I I spent like 78 minutes in that sermon doing biblical support work. And I remember standing in the Barnes and Noble, um, feeling many things. But a little of what I felt was um, fear. Because uh, I, be like, I, I don't want to be known as somebody who goes off the rails. I don't want that accusation to stick. You know what I'm saying? And I'll just be honest. In that moment, in many moments since, what Jesus says when he calls you blessed, when he says, like, hey, yours is the kingdom of heaven, man, you're fine. Right? They can say stuff. You have the life of God in you. You're fine. That is far from my sensibility many days, just so you know. Like, I'm still being stretched into that. A few verses later, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the truth is, as I stand here today, I realize I've never prayed for that guy. Chapter 6, he says uh, that when we pray, we pray, forgive us as we forgive others. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I have a particular forgiveness situation that I've been struggling with for like four years now. And every time I think I've like resolved it, everything I think I've like laid it down and reconciled myself to it, it finds a way to kind of rear its ugly head again. I'm still working this out. Uh, in, in chapter 6, 24 and 25, he says, you can't serve both God and money. He says, um, stop worrying about how you'll be provided for. Uh, there's a lot of days where a lot of my imagination is dedicated to thinking about how the money will show up and how I'll provide for myself. Um, where I feel the kind of like, insecurity that so many of us have felt during the pandemic, for example, just knowing that the foundations are shaking a little bit, right? That the economy is uncertain and we don't know where it'll go. And uh, there's a lot of days when I read Jesus talking about worry and trusting that God is so divinely competent in the world and I think I have just so much more work to do. I could go on and on and on, but the fact is I make my living speaking in the name of Jesus literally i make my living speaking in the name of jesus and jesus says there will be many who speak who prophesy who do like big things in the name of jesus who are far from the life of god and the truth about my life is i live somewhere in the middle right Um, there are days when i can hold my head very high and say i'm living in integrity with these things and there are other days when i'm like man i have a long ways to go and i share all that because i don't want to preach sermons about other people And this cannot be the kind of community where we all shake our heads at the failures of other people in other places and not do our own work and ask ourselves, how is Jesus speaking to us? Right? And so I want to own that. But I also want to tell you the Sermon on the Mount isn't the only thing that Jesus says or does. The Sermon on the Mount is a a point on the way for Jesus in his journey to Jerusalem in the scriptures. And we are here... um, just one week before Palm Sunday in the beginning of Holy Week. Just a, just a few days in the calendar really before we will remember that when God lived God's life in Jesus, when God gave God's life to us quite directly, quite literally in Jesus, we all, like humanity, found a way to reject it, to push it away. And the divine response to that rejection wasn't condemnation, it was self-giving love. And I know for me, like as a pastor, I have um, had to settle in my spirit a very long time ago that I will not claim my right to be a pastor just because I've got it all figured out. And on the days when I don't have it figured out or I haven't figured out how to live it right, I'm not gonna let that keep me from standing in my life and calling and doing this work because it's not predicated on having it perfect. Um, And I would say that for all of us, that's not about being a pastor, that's about following Jesus, right? And so there's that hard word here at the end of the sermon. Uh, ch- chapters 5 and 6 are all pretty great. Chapter 7 is kind of hard. Jesus begins to set these, these forks in the road in front of us, saying that there are false teachers and true teachers. Watch for their fruit. Saying there's a narrow road and a wide road. And the wide road, the easy road, is the one that leads to the destruction. Saying that there are those who will talk all day long about him but be far from him. He starts putting these forks in the road in front of us and saying, like, what kind of person are you going to be? And the, the good news is that grace comes alongside these challenges. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is, is a moment in time on the way to Jesus' death and resurrection. And we don't want to dismiss these words that tell us what Jesus' life and our life could actually be about. But we also want to remember that um, one of the best ways to live the life of God and to speak the name of Jesus is to remember that grace is hardwired into the operating system of this whole thing. That's really good. So I'm not... Um, Thinking about that inventory in the Sermon on the Mount of the ways that I am still being stretched and being grown into it, I'm not looking at that as a reason that we shouldn't do this. What I really hear in it is an invitation to keep doing it, to keep working it out, to keep going there together. right? Um, I don't think necessarily that grace lets us off the hook so much as that grace gets us back on our feet. To keep, keep walking, to keep stretching, to keep growing and um, as jesus talks about uh, those who use his name but are far from the life of god the loving and gentle invitation is uh, to quote the british mind the gap (laughs) right here's the actual life of god that he shows us and that he calls us to and he invites us to and he says you're not going to do it on your own it's given to you not because you're virtuous not because you will yourself toward it not because you summon the strength to do it on your own god gives this to you through brokenness and vulnerability and then here's what that life actually looks like now mind the gap where are you in relationship to that life especially especially those of us who like put the name of Jesus in our mouths who speak in his name in any way who claim that name in any way like mind the gap and when you find that gap don't hang your head but let it be a fresh invitation for grace to get you back on your feet and keep growing and keep walking together, right? Uh, I'm thankful that Jesus calls this out because in the year 2022 with podcasts and documentary series and painful headlines about people who do spectacles in the name of Jesus while living spectacularly far from his life, in this era, if Jesus didn't call this out, I would wonder if he were naive. But the fact that it's right there in the teaching tells me we should actually expect this. This is, this is part of what happens in the world. But, um, we still have a choice to make about whether we're gonna be the kind of people who, who see that temptation toward hypocrisy, who own it, and then who learn to walk with integrity. Right? Uh, don't let this be the kind of sermon that causes you to hang your head. But I do hope it's the kind of sermon that causes us for um, a moment to do a little inventory. This is really fitting for Lent. It's okay if a couple Sundays in Lent leave us a little more uh, introspective than celebratory, right? That's okay. Easter's coming. It'll be here before we know it. That'll be great. It's okay if um, there are a couple of Sundays that leave us a little more introspective and thinking about the gap here. Because if you see the gap you might actually um, be invited to narrow it a little bit with God's help, right? Um, so I thought today we would end with uh, a kind of quiet, thoughtful prayer, actually, uh, with a couple of questions involved in it. And then, um, and then I'll offer a benediction. And So if you want to join me in this prayer, uh, you can close your eyes or put yourself in whatever posture helps you to reflect for a moment before we enter in. Loving God, there are all these tensions we feel as we lay hold of the things that Jesus actually said and did. I think a lot of us have felt both um, the conviction and the possibility of these words. The possibility that we could be the kind of people who forgive, who love our enemies, who disrupt injustice in redemptive ways. The possibility of being the kind of people who don't objectify other people, but who love them. The possibility of being the the kind of people who live up to our word. The possibility of being the the kind of people who don't live for the next dollar, but who live for love. And we also feel conviction, God. Uh, The gap between how we naturally show up some days and the life that Jesus describes, it can be painful. I pray that you would help us to not feel ashamed for that, but yet let um, gentle conviction grow us up. And so friends, I wanna just uh, offer a moment of quiet to just ask, like, where's the gap in your life? Is there some gap between the things he says and the way we live? Is there some gap between the things we claim and the ways we live? And are we open to having that pointed out by the Spirit right now? Loving God, we thank you for Jesus, the truth-teller. The one who sees things how they really are. That he tells the truth about our capacity, our temptation to speak loudly about you and live far from you. And I pray that the gap that we find in our lives wouldn't be one that causes us to hang our heads. Rather, I pray it would be one that teaches us the nature of grace and invites us with you, open-hearted, broken open, with you to keep growing in the right direction. We pray these things in Christ, and we all said amen. If you're able, you stand to your feet. So may you keep trusting the good news that God wants to give God's life to you. And may you trust that Jesus is actually telling us what that life is like. May we become students, disciples, people who are growing together in that direction. May we mind the gap and be on the hunt for the hypocrisy that too easily marks our lives. But may we let that hypocrisy lead us in the right direction. May we grow in grace, and peace because Jesus has come to give us grace and peace. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Amen. See you next week.